The Strategist Cowboy. Today I am reviewing one Mediterranean Spanish lager with one Mediterranean Greek lager. Both lagers thus come from the wine belt. In Europe there is a wine belt in the south and west, a beer belt in the central and northern Europe including Great Britain and finally a vodka belt in the east and northeast of Europe. Our first contestant this week is called Dauradam Glutenfree, Glutenfree Lager from the brewery Dam Master Brewers. A Dauradam Glutenfree Lager costs 17 Swedish kronas or about 2 US dollars. It is not very expensive for a lager with this decent level of ABV, but neither is it cheap. The brewery claims that this lager beer is both gluten-free and vegan. The beer has got a 5.4% ABV. It contains water, barley malt, rice and hops. The fact that it is partly brewed on rice makes this beer particularly interesting to evaluate. The beer is bottled in a slim long necked bottle. The bottle, the bottle is sized 33 cm, i.e. about 11 liquid ounces bottle. The Daura Dam Lager is said by Sustainbologet to best be served at 8 to 10 degrees Celsius i.e. about 46 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. The brewery says nothing about preferred serving temperature. How about the experience then? Perfectly cool. Perfectly chilled. Smells a little bit like foot sweat, like some beers do taste like. But this is a light lager, very light, yellow, bleached for some in some sense. And it's got uh, a lot of bubbles inside the glass on the bottle. And uh, two fingers uh, tall head, perhaps, yeah. It tasted pretty good. 
especially since it's made in the wine belt. Um, it's pretty rich, but it's um, 5.4%, so um, yeah. A little bit bread-like. Not particularly yeasty, but not not yeasty. This is a lager, but uh, it's still. I think it's uh, maybe it's the bread-like taste. Taste on my palate. Sweet. I think this beer is sweet. I don't think it's supposed to be, but I think it's sweet. It's not very bitter. It's not not bitter either. It's not candy-like. And I don't think there is, well, a little strawberry-like, actually. I think. It may this be the sweetness in it. And the spices in this one is, perhaps there are, but I don't think, I don't think so. Herbs, maybe, perhaps. The undertone is uh, it's a special taste of this beer. Particularly, I don't know what it means. I mean, it's uh, honey-like. Yeah. And the carbonation level is uh, well, I haven't burped yet. I'll get back to that. It's not acidic. And I don't think there are any aberrations in it. And the aftertaste is... Uh, wait a minute. Now I'm gonna have to burp. Okay, so it's not, not carbonate, well carbonated. It's it's carbonated. It's um, kind of normally carbonated, and the aftertaste is. Uh, I think the aftertaste is very sweet, sweetness, sweetness in my mouth. And I don't pretty much uh, like it. Not I. 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 I don't like it. 
not very much, but uh, okay. Let's see here. What about grading then? Well, it's a little bit too sweet for me. Like, uh, there's much sugar in it. I grade this beer seven devils out of ten possible. So it's not an eight. That's good. <laughs> uh, okay. We're gonna finish this beer on, in this show. I mean, uh, you can almost notice that it is from the wine belt. They prefer it sweet, like wine. Um, I, I almost, uh, almost w want to change the, the grade to, to a six. Six tables out of ten possible. I think uh, I think I'll do that. Six tables out of ten possible. It's still not eight, so uh, let's go on. Our next contestant is the Greek lager, Mythos Hellenic beer, a beer sort from Denmark. Haha, <laughs> no, but seriously, the brewery is owned by the Carlsberg Group since two thousand and eight. A Mythos Hellenic Lager beer costs barely 18 Swedish kronas, or about 2 US dollars and 10 cents. The beer has got a 4.7% ABV. It contains water, barley malt, maltose, hops and yeast. Here I am thinking that the maltose in it is a taste enhancer made of a up of syrup. Danish beers almost always contains syrup. If it does, I know that I will get a slight tummy hurt. We'll see about that in a couple of minutes. The beer is bottled in a size 50 centiliters, i.e. about 17 liquid ounces bottle, with the name Mythos and also the words Hellenic Premium Beer embossed on the glass bottle, twice. Mythos Hellenic Lager is said by Sustainblaget to best be served at 8 degrees Celsius, i.e. about 46 degrees Fahrenheit. The brewery itself recommends a serving temperature between 3 to 6 degrees Celsius, i.e. about 37 to 43 degrees Fahrenheit. That is considerably less. But I'm going to go with Sustainbloget's recommendation. Since I am not a Mediterranean wine drinker melting away in the scorching sun. I am a polar bear. I drink ice and piss fire. 
you'd think that the toga wearers would drink their beers more chilled than us northerners. But no, they prefer to drink it like they drink their wine from their earth-stomped cellars. How about the experience then? Got a an odd cork or um, stopper. It's uh, it's a pin you can pull. Well, that's good. Smells like pilsner. It's. Uh, Yellow in color and light. It's got about a two finger tall head. Two fingers tall head. Okay. Um, let's see here. And it's yellow in color, light in color. I can see my fingerprints even through the glass. And it's got a uh, Pilsner aroma, as I said. And two fingers tall head. The taste is... Uh, kind of thin. It's a Pilsner taste. It's not rich. It's not bread-like. It's not yeasty. Pilsner taste on my palate. At least it's not sweet. The bitterness uh, is, is bitter, no? It's not bitter either. And it's not candy-like. And there's no fruitiness. And there's no spices. And the undertone is Pilsner. Somewhat Pilsner. The carbonation level is uh, we'll see in a minute. I think the carbonation level is low, pretty low. It's not creamy, but it's not acidic and there are no aberrations, I think. There's not much of an aftertaste in it. Okay, what about grading then? I can't grade this beer very high. I'd say... Um, 
Four devils out of ten possible. It's the highest I can go. Yes, it is. It's uh, even a questionable, a questionable four. It could be a three. But if I've graded some Danish pilsners a four, then this uh, surely can uh, get this grade too. It's still below average. So, um, okay. Absolutely don't drink and operate heavy machines, military or civilian. Drink responsibly or not at all. Don't drink at all if you're underage or pregnant. Thank you. This week's lesson is called Tanks. We can learn from World War II history and conclude that we should not rely on a varying range of different tools and a varying range of different spare parts for different vehicles of different brands, but with similar functions. Hitler should have gambled on just one or two different types of operational tanks, and then he should have stuck to it. In 1943, the Panzerkampf Wagon V Panther and Panzerkampf Wagon VI Tiger had reached their production peak, but they were very expensive tanks. The majority of tanks were of the Panzerkampf Wagon IV type. The Panzerkampf Wagon IV was not heavily armored enough to avoid being knocked out by the T-34s and KV-1s, but they were able to knock these two tanks out from the second half of the World War, from 1942 in version AUSF-F2 to version AUSF-J from 1944 to 1945. Although earlier versions had been in use, in use since the beginning of the war in 1939. Resources should have been directed from the manufacture of other types of tanks and their spare parts to the new production of the Panzerkampf Wagon IV with reinforced armor and cannon. The Germans first used Panzerkampf Wagon IV as infantry support, but in a later version, Aus F2, it took over the role as anti-tank weapon and reduced Panzerkampf Wagon III to Panzerkampf Wagon IV's former support role. Panzerkampf Wagon IV had hitherto acted as anti-tank support for Panzerkampf Wagon III. But there was hardly any point in having different roles for different types of tanks, because they were made both vulnerable and interdependent. In reality, it was also the case that Panzerkampf Wagon IV often encountered enemy tanks or anti-tank guns without the support of Panzerkampf Wagon III. 
What really should matter should instead have been that you had different types of ammunition in each tank unit and a quick access to TOLO when you need to top up ammunition and fuel. But Panzerkampf Wagon 4 was relatively cheap and very reliable. That it was reliable is one thing, but in the long run it will prove less cheap as it was vulnerable from the front to the Russian T-34 and other anti-tank weapons. When Tiger and Panther arrived, they should have melted down other types of tanks for new production of the mentioned tanks, tanks that were for those days optimal tanks against most types of weapon systems, including the Russian T-34. They should have made spare parts only for these two German types of tanks. Not least because the Germans in 1942 to 1943 could not replenish the bearings with chromium that was, that was used for, for alloying in armor. Alloying in, alloying in, in armor. Uh, Tiger cost about 2.5 times as much as a Panzerkampfwagen 4 and almost twice as much as a 5 Panther. The only really negative thing about the 57 ton uh, Tiger, apart from the price tag, was that greater demands were required on bridges, salvage and rail transport than the Germans' previous tank models, which weighed a maximum of 25 tons. To do as Hitler did, investing in a 100-ton tank, when the Germans had an existing production of tanks that could strike out the Russian T-34, was another mistake in a situation when Germany was critically close to lose the war. It was completely unrealistic to assume that the war would continue for so long when things were going so badly. Otherwise it would not have been a mistake to increase the caliber of the cannon and the impact of the grenade at the same time, given the well-armored Joseph Stalin tank. The German Stug III, Sturmgesuch III, was a cost-effective infantry cannon, the most common German armored vehicle of the war, in fact, with its 10,500 built vehicles. Several variants of heavy German tanks with limited offensive tactical value would come into limited production during the last part of the war. The King Tiger, the anti-tank Cannon Jag Tiger, Ferdinand and Sturm Tiger. Multiple parallel projects was not optimal for Germany, e.g. to continue for a long time to manufacture tank types that had no effect on the T-34. What they would have needed was a transition plan, e.g. to start to by providing the Panzerkampfwagen 4 tanks with spare parts so that damaged Panzerkampfwagen 4 units could survive on them for a while, and then move on to manufacturing only Tiger and Panther tanks from the scrap from other tanks in stages. It would be the most resource efficient, especially as the Tiger and Panther wagons survived more battles 
and thus it also gives the best end result in the number of defeated enemy tanks and the retention of own tanks with great tactical and operational value that survived to fight another day. More is not always better. Heavier is not always better either. either. One should strive to optimize fire, movement and protection. But fire and protection are related to size. There were good reasons to keep the infantry cannon carriage Stug 3 in production. However, it must be said that a small number of Sturm cannons and Panzerkampfwagen 4 aus J were delivered to Finland during the war and to some extent justified the diversity of tank types. 59 Stug 3 were delivered by Germany in 1944, half of which got deployed in battle against the Soviet Union. Tank 122, Leopard 2, which is the Swedish Armed Forces' newest tank, has been assembled from a variety of manufacturing parts from different companies due to different parts of the tank, such as engine, gearbox, caterpillar, body, driver's image amplifier, shooter's sight, the tank chief's sight, the spare sight, cannon, smoke-laying battery, tactical command and control system, electrical system and radio. Each require various cutting-edge skills. What if all these manufacturers of Leopard 2 each require a unique set of specialty tools? It would not have been good and especially not to assemble and dis disassemble parts. CV-90 does not have quite as many suppliers that are not part of the Heglundsbufors group, and it is possible that you can service, repair and replace the various parts on the combat vehicle with a smaller set of tools. But if these tools can be universal standard tools, such as Allen keys and socket wrenches, I, ha I, leave, I leave unanswered. But judging by Heglund's armored terrain vehicle, SCP, which in an acquisition from the Swedish armed forces lost to Finnish Patria, which used the international standard tools for its vehicle, Heglund's CV-90 does not have standard tools for service and repair. Engineer Wagon 120 from Rheinmetall is a third vehicle that falls into this category of heavy equipment. Its chassis is fortunately from a modified Leopard 2. It would be optimal if you could only have one set of international standard tools for all three vehicles in field service as well as in the workshop. The issue is not exactly solved by the fact that the operational support group's Armored Terrain Repair Vehicle 360 has many relevant tools with it. You may be able to repair the vehicle, but the many tools for different vehicles steal a lot of space in the vehicle and time from the mechanics. 
It might have been different with the idea of not using standard tools if Sweden had had a land border with a potentially invading state. I want to do a sweeping materiel analysis, and I will use the example earlier with Heglund's and Patria's armored terrain vehicles. The Swedish armed forces was right to choose the Finnish Patria vehicles over the Swedish Heglund's vehicles. Why? Because the Patria carriages are not as complex as Heglund's carriages. If something had broken down on a Heglund's vehicle, in the terrain during wartime. It would in 9 cases out of 10 have remained out of order if it could not be salvaged or repaired by the operational support group with the Rolling Workshop Armored Terrain Repair Vehicle 360 i.e. Bild 360 Partly because Heglund's vehicle is so advanced but also as I mentioned because the vehicle requires specialty tools. A Patria vehicle, on the other hand, has two or maybe even three ch chances out of ten to be repaired on site or nearby. I see no contradiction between advanced and simple in construction. Advanced and complicated are two different things that both refer to the function of a system, but are often related when it comes to different material systems. I recommend the armed forces to always buy moderately complicated material that does not require specialty tools in most fields, however not in the Air Force, not in the field of air defense missiles and naval targeting missiles either perhaps, because you cannot stop and repair them when they are used. The naval targeting missile and the air defense missile as such do not have their own wheels. And when it is not fired, it has no function other than the deterrence and reaction response function. Accuracy requires that it is reasonably advanced in any case. I'd rather have an expensive missile 15 than a missile that does not hit its target. Whether it was assembled with international standard tools or whether it was assembled with specialty tools, is not decisive for the end result. But armored vehicles and other heavier vehicles must not be too complicated, <coughs> excuse me, also for a reason other than the, that they are easier to repair than more advanced vehicles and also to do it on site. <coughs> The tank company at E19 I19 in Norrbotten has more than combat resources. This also includes the tow truck BGBV 120, the Army's Ox, which with its main winch can pull up to 98 tons. But here's the point you can manufacture and buy more or less complicated vehicles that are easier to repair and do not require advanced specialty tools for the same cost as a smaller number of the more expensive types. And you can manufacture them in less time. 
may be even mass-produced according to the assembly line principle. It is known from World War II that the Russians' faster production rate and delivery rate of the T-34 compared to the, to, to the Germans' production of Tigers and Panthers contributed greatly to deciding the war in the Russians' favor, even though the driver of a T-34 sometimes had to sit on a wooden box. Russian cannons, anti-tank guns, etc. were also produced and mass-produced faster than the Germans could produce similar equipment in Germany. By could, I mean provided that the Germans prioritized these weapon systems, as they did with combat aviation. The Germans had the advantage of having better quality on their materiel, which was carefully thought out, but it, look, it took too long to develop and produce, or too many different variants of tank types were produced, all of which had their specific spare parts claims. The fact that functioning weapons factories were or became so few in relation to their opponents made their strategy on the materiel front with superb quality but smaller quantity over acceptable quality all the more doubtful, doubtful in the long run, if we disregard the fact that there was a shortage of fuel. If an advanced system, whether it is a gearbox or an optical site, has been knocked out, you should at least be able to manufacture and assemble it relatively quickly. If it is easier to repair and manufacture material, Due to, due to the fact that it is less advanced and you can use standard tools, an advantage is gained. Ergo, a simpler construction is often called for, but not so simple that it becomes ineffective against more advanced equally modern weapon systems. The rate of production of munitions and ammunition is a factor especially when you are in the minority in terms of manpower and population as a state. Well, of course it is extremely tempting to want to own, within quotation marks, the most technologically advanced qualitative materiel in peacetime, in preference to the slightly simpler construction solution. But when, if, when slash if the war comes to us, it is desirable to be able to increase the production rate in cases where Sweden produced the military material itself. Especially if we have conscription, though not mandatory, because those times have passed. We then have to put a little more weight on, in and balance the scales a little more against the quantitative. Especially when it comes to land vehicles vehicle platforms. Albeit, Patria is certainly Finnish, but time is still a factor in production that can affect the outcome of the war. We won't have time to produce a Jastatniegripen before the war ends. That we may have to forget about. But there are other systems in place. 
but many systems still need to be manufactured qualitatively rather than quantitatively. It may be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. For the above reasons in this paragraph, it is vital that we have ambulatory workshops for the repair of tanks and other combat vehicles, especially if Tank 122 and CV-90 require multiple unique tools. Therefore, I am thankful that the Armored Repair Vehicle 360 will be introduced in the Armed Forces. Armored Repair Vehicle 360 will also be introduced in various designs from the mentioned off-road repair vehicle and an off-road vehicle to an ambulance armored off-road vehicle to a combat management armored off-road vehicle. Quote, if 100 low-quality tanks have the same operational effect as 25 high-quality tanks, a battle between them will generally mean four times more casualties on the side that has invested in quantity. End quote Michael Duke Greve. Note that Michael Greve means the same operational effect. But if you used World War II as an example, the Germans had better self-discipline and a better and more relevant educational training than did the Russians. This is why they won their victories, more than it was, was because of better equipment. Take the example of the T-34, which the Germans had no equivalent tank to when it arrived. The T-34 slowed down the Germans, but the Germans still fought successfully. Russia certainly has less well-thought-out equipment, but they have sufficient range and often stand off with their missiles and guns. External factors such as landscape, environment, terrain and topography or necessary transfer of units and equipment over an ocean are also critical. One must have the right constellations of weapon systems, countermeasures and sensors. Often the most optimal countermeasure weapons type is not of the same sort as the one the enemy is combating you with. Sometimes you choose different means than those your enemy use when you fight from different plat platforms and you fight from two different arenas or from the same arena. arena. One can, e.g., use grenade rifles against combat vehicles and torpedoes on a helicopter platform against submarines. What I want to say is that you try to get the most economic solution for counter systems in the most optimal way. For example, RB57N law against combat vehicles. You still need tanks, but for certain situations you want the cheapest and best you can get as a countermeasure and countermeasure system. It places completely different demands on the technology and hopefully it means for us that it will be both cheaper and less complicated, but still effective. If we take the example of submarine combat, it will be much cheaper and less risky 
with submarine fighting helicopters than with submarine fighting corvettes as platforms for sensor and weapon systems. But if we replace the corvettes with smaller vessels, there may be more to gain from it than to use helicopters. But then the hull must have a synthetic aperture sonar, SAS, which drives up the price tag. On the other hand, the helicopter is more mobile and can use active sonar, usually without the risk of being battled. All of this is very much a question of assessment. Of course, you have to have a good quality level on the technology. But I do not see an absolute contradiction between good quality and a simple and smart construction, as long as you do not relax on the required function of the weapon system and the platform and its sensors. Thanks for listening. Oh, thank you.